0: Welcome back to the Stronger by Science podcast. For today's episode, we've got an excellent interview. Greg and I sat down with Molly Galbraith and Marika Hart from Girls Gone Strong. Throughout the interview, we discussed a number of female specific lifting topics. So for example, we talked about pelvic health, we talked about lifting during pregnancy, lifting after pregnancy. So if you are a female lifter or if you coach female lifters, this is a really, really informative interview. We want to thank Molly and Marika for stopping by and spending some time with us. And we also want to thank you for listening. So, as always, enjoy the episode. We have a number of really important topics to discuss today. But before we get into that, first of all, thank you, Molly and Marika, for joining us today.
1: Thanks so much for having us. Thank you for having us.
0: Now, Greg and I have a lot of things in common. And one of the things we have in common is that we are both men. And so we are very much open to the possibility that we might have some blind spots when it comes to female-specific topics and considerations for lifting. So to start things off, I want to begin with the topic of pelvic health. So Marika, uh, for female lifters or for people who coach female lifters, what do we need to know about pelvic health?
2: Ooh, that's a big one. Okay, so what... Probably we've covered a lot in um, some of our smaller courses and also within our bigger certifications That Girls Gone Strong is really trying to give people some of those nuts and bolts um, when it comes to pelvic health. And f- probably the first thing that we want people to understand is to understand scope of practice. So knowing what you can and can't work with, that diagnosis for a lot of fitness professionals is outside of scope um, and developing some of those relationships with, health professionals locally so that you can refer to and get referrals from. Um, And then the next step would be to have a good screening process in place to, and I I don't know, is this something, um, Eric and Greg, that you guys have been taught to ask people about some of their pelvic health concerns or do you have a screening form? Not to put you on the spot, I'm just curious to know whether this is something, I guess, within teaching programs currently that people are learning for
3: client intake, we ask people just generally, are there any any like health concerns that might really affect anything related to how we would need to do our job?" Uh, and so if someone has a pelvic health concern, that's when they would bring it up. Um, but we don't ask like targeted questions to say like, you know, sure. do you have any specific pelvic health concerns? Just more, do you have health concerns generally?"
2: Yeah, and then people can choose whether to opt in that information or not. Yeah. So interestingly, I mean, I know there was a study that came out of Perth a few years back where they actually just asked women going to the gym, like as they came out, did a little survey, how many of you leak when you cough, sneeze, jump, laugh, which is what we call stress urinary incontinence. And it was 49% of regular gym goers who had symptoms of stress urinary incontinence. So it's actually really prevalent. We can talk about prevalence in lots of different sports and lifting, and we can get into that a little bit more later. But I think it's really important to understand that it's actually uh, symptoms of pelvic floor dysfunction are really, really common. And it's likely that people coming to see you, uh, women coming to see you for coaching of lifting are are likely, you know, you're going to see some people who have some symptoms. So we would really love to see um, a more screening process happening more often in gyms, Uh, whereby you would ask some of these questions and some of the things we're really looking at would be the stress urinary incontinence which we just mentioned pelvic organ prolapse and pelvic organ prolapse is basically when you get um, descent of one or more of the pelvic organs and we're talking about the bladder the bowel and the uterus and basically you lose some of that myofascial integrity in the pelvis that's holding everything in place And those organs start to drift down towards the entrance of the vagina. And the way that people will often describe that will be a sensation of a heaviness, a lump, a bulge, um, a dragging feeling. And it's probably one of the biggest risk factors for that is vaginal childbirth. uh, Yeah, vaginal childbirth. Um, But it can happen really at any stage in life. And it's actually, they've done some studies looking at um, some. I think it was paratroopers, this is a while back, and actually these are women who'd never been pregnant, um, never given birth, and they had around 50% of them had pelvic organ prolapse anyway. So it's quite prevalent in some types of physical activities too. When does it become a problem? It's a problem when it becomes symptomatic. So if your clients are describing to you this, I've got this heaviness feeling downstairs um, or I feel like a lump or feel like something is coming out, then that's very likely to be pelvic organ prolapse so that's that's quite common in um in the athletic population what are the other things we'd probably look at um pelvic pain uh pelvic pain which probably you've heard of things like endometriosis or painful periods um statistically really really common and we know endo's around about 10 percent of the population although it seems to take about 10 years to get a diagnosis these days um but yeah, you'll probably see that in a lot of your athletes as well, or painful periods, and that's 70-80% of the population. So these are all things that we kind of cover within pelvic health. So anything to do with leaking of feces or urine, um, anything to do with pelvic organ prolapse, uh, diastasis, we tend to cover in pelvic health as well, which is that abdominal muscle separation that you get through pregnancy. And um, we can talk about recovery from that a bit later. And um, and pelvic pain, and I'd say they're probably the the big ones that we we cover a lot of in, in pelvic health. Does that give a bit of an overview for you?
0: Definitely, yeah. Um, and so, some of those prevalence numbers were absolutely shocking. I did not expect them to be that high. Yeah, I,
3: I was actually going to ask a couple follow ups about that F- sure. for the uh, for the gym goers with forty nine percent rate of stress urinary incontinence. Did that account for whether they had previously been pregnant or not? Like, what what does that prevalence look like?
2: No, it was general. It was general population. So they were between like, I think, 20 and 60 years of age. Some okay. had, had kids, some had not.
3: Gotcha. Uh, and, and then for the, um, the pelvic organ prolapse, mm-hmm. do we know that that's, you know, roughly like a 50% prevalence? in the general population, like, is there yeah, data on that? Or yeah. is it mostly just because those women were paratroopers and, you know, dealing with more stress that could potentially like stretch out ligaments and fascia?
2: That's a great, that's a great question. And look, um, you can go crazy looking, looking through all the research on pelvic organ prolapse. And probably one of the um, things that's changed in more recent years is that we used to, I say we, as a, as a community in in pelvic health with the gynecologists. Um, used to believe that really there shouldn't be much movement of the organs. So the way that we test it is we actually do a vaginal examination and we ask people to bear down and we have a look and we see how much movement there is of the anterior or posterior wall of the vagina. So we look for things that are basically moving down and whether they move out of the body as well, and that's obviously a more significant prolapse. Now, in previous years, any time there was movement, especially as it comes towards the entrance, that would be considered a diagnosis of prolapse and then you tick that box and you go into that sort of category and we and we grade that or we stage it in terms of stage one, two, three and four with a bigger number being um, worse basically. Now what's happening is we're starting to go, well, hang on, is this supposed to not move at all? Like maybe there's supposed to be some movement and maybe that's okay. So when you ask me about prevalence, I think prevalence is probably if you're just talking about a structural situation. I think it's really high and I wouldn't be surprised to find that 50% or more of the population have it. And certainly if you've had, if you've been pregnant or you've given birth, we're going to see really high numbers, but then we have to figure out what is normal because we don't see people before they get before they are pregnant, generally, mm-hmm. so we now probably have created a situation where we have, like with lumbar spine, you know, you go on MRI. The general population, you are going to see some disc bulges, right? You are going to see a little bit of wear and tear. How much is normal, and how much, like a normal aging process or a normal physiological process, and how much is pathological? Um, so I think the story, the the sort of, I guess, our thought processes around prolapse are changing. And we're really now moving towards thinking, well, look, if it's all staying internal and if the person doesn't have any symptoms, maybe that's okay. Maybe that's not something that we need to actually call prolapse. Maybe we should just say, look, there's, that's a normal variation.
3: Gotcha. That, that makes a lot of sense because when, when I hear prolapse in any context, my brain immediately goes to a very bad place. Like that, that's not like Mm -hmm. a, a, a happy term when you hear like, some organ is prolapse. It's like, Oh shit, something very, very bad is occurring. Um, so I, I think that what you just said helps, helps contextualize it a lot. So like in, in terms of w- what's the difference between like general prevalence versus, um, like symptomatic or problematic prevalence. So of, of the women dealing with pelvic organ prolapse, how often is that problematic for them? And then what can they do about it?
2: Great question. The The truth on that is we don't know. Um, it seems to be that the more significant the grade or stage of prolapse is, the more likely people are to be symptomatic. Mm-hmm. So certainly once it comes out of the body, <laughs> um, what we call a stage three or four, four prolapse, those women are far more likely, like I don't know percentage-wise, but you're probably looking like 70 80%, maybe more. There will be, strangely, some people who literally have part of their organ outside of their body and who will be blissfully unaware. On the flip side of that, you'll have some women who have the tiniest amount of movement, who have severe catastrophization, stress, anxiety, significant symptoms for sure, um, but it doesn't seem to match anatomically what's going on so that's so it's a really good question and i don't know the answer to that i think for those with very minor structural prolapse you're going to see a lot a lot of people who are asymptomatic but with those with the more progressive uh, versions you're going to see much higher rates it's probably more that sort of relationship
1: well and one thing too i just want to want to pipe up here i know marieke has been doing an incredible job but some some statistics that i think will also blow your mind are up to 19 percent of women will have surgery for incontinence or pelvic organ prolapse by the time they're 85. And 30% of those women will have to have multiple surgeries. So um, for so many women, they've there's been a lot of shame around this topic. There's been a lot of confusion. There's been a lot of um, just not understanding that either what they're experiencing is not normal or that there's something can be done about it. And so I think for a lot of women, they have these symptoms, they're experiencing these things, they think it's normal or they're too embarrassed to bring it up, especially with incontinence, they think it's normal. With pelvic organ prolapse, they're often too embarrassed or scared to bring it up. Um, and so they don't ever get treatment for it. And so, like Marika said, you know, it's, um, it, it, it there's, uh, Yeah, there's just, there are things that can be done about it, which is a really good thing. There are, and there are a lot of things that when we talk about scope of practice, you know, Marika is a physiotherapist. I'm a strength and conditioning coach. I think a lot of coaches and trainers think, well, I don't really need to know this stuff because it's outside of my scope of practice. But Marika actually gave an incredible talk at a conference a couple years ago um, where she had surveyed women in her community about what things helped their symptoms of prolapse. And a number of them were things that coaches and trainers could actually coach their clients through. And as a coach or trainer, again, having that relationship with your client and with their physical therapist, you need to know about these types of topics, even if you're not obviously diagnosing and treating it, there is still a lot that you can do as a health and fitness professional, and a lot that you need to understand about what your role is. So I'd love I want to get back to Marika talking about what women can do about it, but I just wanted to pipe up and and share that. So up to 19% of women will have surgery for incontinence or pelvic organ prolapse and up to 30% of them will have to have multiple surgeries, um, which is just like, again, you think it's something that happens to a really small percentage of women and it's just not true.
3: No. Yeah. I mean that, that makes sense. And I'm, I'm honestly blown away by these prevalence numbers you're saying, like I would have never anticipated that. Uh, And I, I like to think of myself as someone who's like relatively approachable and non-judgmental uh, and I know yes. I'm trying to think I believe I know more than five women, and I've never heard anyone talk about this. Um, so i I mean pelvic organ prolapse like that's a new that's a new term for me like th- that is the degree to which mm-hmm. people don't talk about it. Um, so yeah I, I think it's I think it's awesome one, that you're talking about it generally, and two, that you have these prevalence numbers, just so if any women are out here listening to this, um, they know that it's not something that's like, super weird and uncommon to, to hopefully destigmatize it to some degree.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'll I'll tell you really quickly, I've been in health and fitness for almost 17 years. I've coached women for primarily my entire career as a strength coach. I owned a gym, I've trained clients online and in person. And it wasn't until gosh, 2014, when Girls Gone Strong had released a strength and conditioning program. And someone had reached out to us about using it with their wife who was pregnant. And I was like, okay, well, let me do some research about how maybe I'm, this night might need might need to be modified slightly. And I started digging and I was like, how in the world Have I been a coach for 10 years, trained under some of the smartest strength coaches, physical therapists, PhDs, and I didn't know anything about this. And that's really what kind of kicked off the crusade at Girls Gone Strong um, to start providing this this information to people and to help open their eyes that it's not a niche 85 percent of women in the US will have a baby at some point in their life um and you know it, and these these again these numbers affect women who haven't had children but it, but talking about uh, you know pre and postnatal women as if they're a niche is just like a you know ridiculous
0: every number I've heard so far has absolutely <laughs> blown my mind 85 percent of women will have a child
1: Wait
3: that one blew
0: your mind yeah that one totally blew my mind. Dude, most people have kids. That's a lot, though. That's a high number. I, my mind is completely blown every every step of the way. I right? mean, it's
3: it's that's comfortably below historical averages.
0: Well, that's news to me. Man,
2: <laughs> do, you, do you want me to throw in some more stats just to blow your mind?
0: <laughs> if you have them, yeah.
3: I, I I very much want you to do this because when Eric's mind is being blown, he makes very amusing faces, and I'm sitting right across from him, so. Throw as many as you can at him.
2: We can do a little quiz if you like. You can guess the percentages of oh God. <laughs> uh, women in, women in sport. No, no women in sport who who leak. All right, let's go. Uh, volleyball. Uh,
0: sixty percent.
2: Oh, very close. Sixty-six percent. Yeah, nice. Wow. Uh, endurance runners.
3: Uh, let's go. Fifty-four percent.
2: Fifty. Well done. Uh, triathletes. Um, yeah, I'd say fifty-five. It's actually lower. It's thirty-seven, which is interesting. So they must be doing a little bit of a uh, lower impact stuff. Yeah. Um
3: gymnastics. Oh man, this is tough because there's a lot of impact, but also they tend to skew young. Um, I'll go on the high side. Let's go seventy.
2: Yes, spot on. Yeah, wow. absolutely. And Hell on yeah.
3: I, I mean th- that's very that's very unfortunate for them, but I'm <laughs> proud of myself. <laughs>
2: He's not happy for all the ladies leaking. Correct, Sorry. Correct. Uh, trampolining, last one. Um, uh, 65. 90. N- Whoa! Oh,
0: my God.
3: Holy shit.
0: You know, yeah. so our numbers weren't that bad for our estimates, but basically, what I, because you blew my mind with all the numbers <laughs> leading up to that, I just, my filter was like- You upped them. Oh, it was like, <laughs> what number would you say double that and then say it? Like, I mean, <laughs> it, these numbers are absolutely- astonishingly high. Now, throughout the conversation, this whole conversation kind of started, you know, we talked a little bit about uh, trainers, strength and conditioning coaches, having some kind of screening process. Um, But, you know, one of my follow up questions that I've been dying to get back to, especially after hearing these numbers is, okay, you implement the screening process. And, uh, you know, if it's all, nope, don't have any of that stuff, I think I know the answer. What you do with that, you, you move ahead. But what do you do when you mm-hmm. implement the screening process and you find out that some of this stuff is present? What What is the next step for the typical trainer or coach who wants to make sure they're staying within their, their scope of practice?
1: So first things first, um, we, we do include these pointed questions um, within their screening process. What we've also uh, implemented relatively recently at girls come strong in terms of our um, like park use that we have people fill out is we have essentially created a boundary section where we say, Hey, um, there are a number of topics that uh, are going to affect your overall health performance, you know, progress, your workouts, you know, working with me as your coach, um, you know, ideally we'd basically be able to have conversations about these things. If there are any of them that you don't feel comfortable talking about, you can check this box below. So essentially we give people an opportunity to opt in or opt out of conversations about certain areas of health and fitness. So it can be their nutrition for some people, for some women, that's a huge trigger that they aren't interested in talking about um, their body weight. It can be their menstrual cycle. It can be pelvic floor health, things like that. So we basically give them a paragraph explaining like, Hey, there are a number of things that can affect the way that I write your training program and how I coach you and what your results are. Um, opt into these conversations that you're open to talking about. And then we, um, Again, more pointed questions specifically about pelvic health and pelvic health symptoms. We highly, highly, highly encourage that all health and fitness professionals develop a referral network with other uh, professionals that you trust who might be working with your client. So that's going to be a pelvic health physical therapist. a, an OBGYN, a registered dietitian, you could even, you know, massage therapist, uh, uh, things like that. But uh, having a, if you work with women, having a relationship with a pelvic health physical therapist is so, so, so critical. Um, and the good news is, is that again, they can, they can actually do an internal examination or most, uh, well, that's a, that's another tangent. Um, there are pelvic health physical therapists in the U.S. who do internal examinations and some who don't. Um, the term pelvic health physical therapist is much less regulated here in the United States, whereas in Australia, you absolutely like you can't call yourself a pelvic health physio unless you do internal um, examinations and have done a significant amount of schooling, which Marika could speak to if we wanted to. But um, having a relationship with a pelvic health physical therapist is so critical. You have the conversation with your client, say, "Hey, what you're experiencing is really common. The good news is that there's you know." treatment for this. You can work with a pelvic health physical therapist. Generally, it just takes a couple of sessions and, um, you know, where they get the, um, get the diagnosis. They're given some exercises to do. They make some recommendations about what they should, or maybe should not be doing in the gym, give you some ways to modify their, um, exercises when they're having symptoms and generally I mean Marika what would you say three to five sessions max working with a pelvic health physical therapist for most women they're going to start seeing significant improvements
2: yeah it, I mean it obviously completely depends on what they're coming to see me for but for a lot of the um, people who are coming in for exercise and maybe they've got a little bit of leaking or some mild symptoms yeah I won't see them very much
1: And so again, there are a lot of things that people can do. So if a woman's doing um, a goblet squat, for example, and she confides in you that she's leaking a little bit while she's doing the squat, there are so many different things that you can do to help her. You can reduce the weight, you can reduce the volume. So if she was doing maybe 10 reps or 12 reps, you can back it down to six or eight. Um, You can change the position of the kettlebell so she can do like an offset load. Um, You could try even a dumbbell instead of a kettlebell. She could change her Stance a little bit. She might slow the exercise down. She might change her breathing strategy. She might try exhaling um, on exertion. Um, There are a number of things that you can do that, in that moment, can help her better manage the symptoms that she's having without stopping the exercise completely. So, and that's a lot, again, of the education that we do at Girls Gone Strong is helping health and fitness professionals um, screen their clients, have a referral network for who to send them to, uh, have trusted professionals to work with. And then teach them how on the spot, they can modify their clients programming if they're experiencing symptoms. Then of course, once you go through a number of things, if they're not, um, if the symptoms aren't alleviated, you could switch to a different exercise or, um, something of that nature. But yeah, there's just a lot that, that coaches and trainers can do that is within their scope of practice that can help their clients, you know, manage these symptoms and just improve their confidence and their self-efficacy so much of the issues around pelvic health or the way women view themselves and their bodies. You know, we know how important language is. Um, Greg, like you said earlier, you're like, when I hear the word prolapse, I think something very, very bad. And then Marika, you can find that with what Marika said. that. For the last X number of years, they've been assessing women and thinking just a little bit of movement in the pelvic organs is prolapse. So uh, you it changes the way women view themselves, their capabilities, what they think is possible for themselves and their bodies. It changes for a lot of women. And again, Marika can speak to this. They stop moving altogether because they're nervous or scared. Um, So it's really critical for health and fitness professionals to know there's a lot that they can do in conjunction with a pelvic health physical therapist to help their clients uh, manage their symptoms and actually treat um, pelvic organ prolapse and incontinence.
0: The thing that's so surprising to me is that it, it sounds pretty simple, uh, the way that you put it, it it's really just a, a matter of asking your client or, you know, doing some good screening processes, referring out to some experts. And then, I mean, like you said, in most cases, just a handful of visits with the right expert, uh, healthcare professional, and and we can see pretty dramatic changes. I mean, that, that's pretty incredible.
1: It really is. And part of the issue is that there's just so much stigma around it. Like, there are physical therapists that I have had conversations with here in the US that five years ago didn't even know that pelvic health physical therapy was an area of specialty for PTs. They had absolutely no idea. And others who did know, but they snickered about it. There was just like this, again, stigma attached to it, or they thought that it was weird. Um, There are some women who are, again, afraid to. Maybe go there like a physical therapist is going to do what, you know, like that's like you do that at the OBGYN, right? But you don't think about going to a physical therapist mm-hmm. and having an, you know, an internal um, vaginal exam. And so I think there's, again, a lot of, uh, a lot of ignorance. It's getting a lot better thanks to folks like Marika, thanks to the work we're doing at GGS and other awesome um, pelvic health professionals. So that it is getting It's getting a lot better, but the ignorance and then the stigma and then the fear that a lot of women have around it. And then just the idea, the shame and the idea that they think it's normal. Um, Marika can probably attest to this, but if you ask a woman, do you leak when you cough, sneeze, laugh or jump? She's like, oh, no, you know, and you're like, so you don't leak it or do do you leak urine? They say no. And you say, even when you cough, sneeze, laugh or jump? And then she's like, well, of course I do. I've had two kids and it's just considered normal. It's something that women think that they have to live with because they have it and all their friends have it. And, you know, they're like, Oh, I just have a weak bladder," or this is, you know, this is just the way that it is. Cause I've had two kids.
2: I was actually just having a chat to an Olympic level athlete the other day. And, um, she, we, in her particular sport, which I won't, I won't say what it is, but, um, I was saying, you know, do you know, I'd really like to talk to you and the team about, uh, pelvic health, about incontinence, um, about prolapse and things like that. Is this something that you think the girls might be interested in? And she laughed and she said, oh, my God, yeah, half the team leaks. Um, and so, <laughs> again, like I know the stats and I was still really surprised. And and also the uh, sort of her nonchalant kind of, oh, yeah, yeah, well, so-and-so leaks when she, um, I know, when she changes direction on the field and uh, so-and-so leaks when she uh does jumping like double unders in training and things like this. So um interestingly in in some environments people I know um did you guys ever see the CrossFit video a few years ago when they were talking about leaking with CrossFit?
0: I did not. I didn't
3: either.
2: Okay. So it's on YouTube if you want to look at it later, but they it was it was an interesting video because it was almost glorifying um going so hard that you pee yourself.
3: That is so on brand for CrossFit. <laughs> I mean <laughs> when, when they when they sell t-shirts with like Uncle Rabdo the clown, like of, oh, geez. of of course that's something they would do.
2: There there is a t-shirt for peeing yourself with double unders. <laughs> um anyway. <laughs> so so uh I totally lost my train of thought. I, I mean, I, I guess that at least destigmatizes it <laughs> to some degree. Like maybe at least it's being spoken about. I yeah. guess, I guess, but I, I think we want to change the message that yeah, it's common, but you don't have to put up with it. Um, and there are some things that you can you can do to change that. Uh, when Molly talked, um, a lot of she talked about the referral network, and one of the things I would just encourage you to do when you're reaching out to physios is just to ask them how they feel about lifters. Ask that question. So, what do you feel about powerlifting? (laughs) What do you feel about weightlifting? Because we, as a, I can say this as a pelvic health physio, we as a group are ridiculously conservative by nature. And I think there is a little bit of a culture of don't do that. That's going to be too, too heavy. Oh, don't do that. That's, you know, that might cause issues. And so, um, you really want to work with people who, very much want to support your patient's goal, your your client's goals. So I, I would always ask that question and say, like, if you're working with a crossfitter, for example, just say to the physio, "How do you feel about crossfitting?" And if they say, "Oh my god, it's the worst thing in the world," that that's probably not someone that you want to develop a relationship with. Um, and certainly with with things like um, powerlifting um, and other forms of weightlifting, you know, you just want to make sure that they are on board to support your patient's your client's goals. Um, just to make sure that you're all on the same page, we don't want to be having that disconnect between the messages.
3: No, that that makes sense and and I actually had a follow-up about that. So when Molly was talking about scope of practice and things that you can do with a client in the gym on that day to to lessen symptoms and and decrease risk of incontinence there in the session, a lot of those things sounded like basically things to do to make the exercise a little bit easier, like reduce the weight, reduce the reps a little bit, whatever. So I, I was wondering how some of that squared with, say, training a female powerlifter, where if they get stress urinary incontinence when they're doing a max deadlift, but a max deadlift is is literally a third of their sport. Um, h- how do you really square that circle? Like if they go to a pelvic health physio are they going to be able to to generally like completely fix that issue or will it just be kind of kind of just a matter of trying to to manage the symptoms and and lessen them to some degree
2: that will definitely be individual um if there is a weak a pelvic floor weakness then obviously some strength training might help that it can be little things like changing the technique so when you talk, to, you talk about a threshold, right? You're wondering, like, is this a tissue threshold problem? And every time they hit that, they're just going to leak because they just can't get that closure of the urethra. There's just mm-hmm. so sometimes, you know, building up the strength might help with that. For some people, it literally is every time they get to like, I'm thinking of a client that I saw a little while back. But, you know, she could she could deadlift 170 kilos. But if, every time she hit 180, that was when she would leak. So for her, yes, we had to look at the pelvic floor itself and, and seeing whether she had good pelvic floor strength, whether there was any prolapse. But then we're looking at the technique side of things because she was a sumo deadlifter and every and which is a very wide stance, which is much harder on the pelvic floor um, It's it, because it's in a more lengthened position. So it's actually changing the stance can make a big difference. Um, Molly talked about the breath side of things. So with things like incontinence and prolapse, it's very much, uh, we, we often think about the pressure system because you're talking about intra-abdominal pressure, right? Mm-hmm. So to do a big lift, we know you need a valsalva. Like you've got to have a good breath hold and basically kind of lock everything down. We can't really do an exhale on exertion when you're doing a really, really lift, heavy lift. It's just, I mean, you guys are the, are the experts in that field, but that's my understanding.
3: You can, but it's generally ill-advised. <laughs>
2: <laughs> so, so things like um, if someone has a strategy where they're taking a really big breath in before they close off their glottis and do a uh, Valsalva, you might get them just to exhale a little bit, uh, maybe like 20% before mm-hmm. they do that. And that might be enough just to reduce that intra-abdominal pressure a little bit. Uh, another thing might be looking at things like belts. And there was- uh, Interestingly, there was a study on powerlifters in Australia, and they were looking at incontinence rates. And then they asked them, it was about 40%, actually, if you want to know the stat for powerlifters. And they asked them as well just to offer some feedback on this topic. And a few of them mentioned that they they felt that the brace uh, was an issue, Uh, the belt, sorry, the powerlifting belt. So also how you use a belt can change things. Now, one of my colleagues, Anthony Lowe, who um, Molly knows, and he does a lot of work with, powerlifters and crossfitters um he's probably one of the few well i can't say few people in this area because there's probably a lot of people behind the scenes doing good stuff but i've spoken to him quite a few times about about using belts and one of the tips that he finds works really well for the incontinent side of things is actually those people who use a strategy of pushing through the belt like really trying to push out with their abdomen Mm -hmm. he gets them just to try and push to the belt. So. Get, make sure when they tie it on, when they actually lock it on, that there's still like a little bit of gap that you can fit a finger in it, but that they sort of push out to the belt and not try and basically push all the way through. And he said for some people that works really well. So there can be things just within the strategy that may mean that they can still go heavy, but without the symptoms.
1: And I, I like Marika said, I've seen clients who have, after pelvic health physical therapy, have been able to increase the amount of load that they can lift before they start experiencing symptoms and then other people who again just hit a particular threshold and experience leaking um, but the other thing is and this is such a a thing that's so not talked about in this realm is that for some women they don't really care if they leak and so like you know I mean they, it is obviously a symptom of a bigger problem but a lot of people when they're doing intense, activities or sports or they're competing in something like they there are certain risks um, and consequences that they are willing to accept to be able to do the thing that they love and so we talk about Marie and I talk about this and we talk about it with Anthony the guy that she was just mentioning is that you know explaining to your client like hey you don't have to do this but ultimately giving her the space and autonomy to make that decision for herself. Cause there are some coaches who just want to completely shut it down if she's experiencing those symptoms. But ultimately we think again, honoring, uh, you know, giving women autonomy and agency over the decisions that they make about their bodies and the consequences that they're willing to accept, um, letting them know that they don't have to do that. But if they, um, if they are and they want to keep lifting, like that's, that's up to them. Um, the other thing is like, you know, if they're, I don't know how often, again, depending on like you, you all program for powerlifting significantly more than I do. I do a lot of stuff with general population, but you know, there might be a threshold at which she's starting to leak. And I don't know how much she could work underneath. Say she was leaking at 90% of her one rep max, you know, programming a lot more of her lifting, you know, beneath 90%, beneath that threshold where she starts to leak and only having her go over 90%, um, you know, minimally as necessary leading up to a meet could also be a strategy.
0: I did have a a quick follow-up. I'm really good at ignoring all of my problems, even when they're (laughs) very serious problems. So I I can totally relate to the idea of like, if you're a female lifter and you have some leaking going on, but you're just like, ah, it's like fine. Like, it's not that big of a deal to me. What would be like, are, are there serious medical consequences to letting that go completely unchecked and just lifting through it and not? trying to seek any kind of remedy for that?
2: (laughs) Good question. (laughs) Uh, Prolapse, I'd say more more so. Um, You know, when Molly was talking about the stats for surgery uh, and the failure rates for surgery, they're really quite high, especially for anterior wall prolapse. Posterior wall is pretty good, Um, but, you know, 30% recurrence rate. So, sometimes... So, if you... If women do push through and keep progressing their prolapse to the point where, because it's, it's a bit different with prolapse, because you you feel it all, you could feel it all day. Like women tend to have a much um, lower threshold for pushing through with prolapse, I find, um, and you will find women will self-select away from things like powerlifting if they have symptoms of pelvic organ prolapse anyway so i'd say prolapse you, you we probably worried more about the progression there because if it moves on to surgery and then you have failure rate and then post-surgery they might say we don't want you lifting any more than 20 kilos which you, you can imagine for a weightlifter is a joke um with incontinence if you keep pushing through pushing through will it make it worse maybe maybe not um it could reduce the amount of support on the bladder neck, which may mean they leak more day-to-day. Um, but I don't think we've actually got good data on that. Do you know what's really interesting, though, is that, um, that that study, you know, I was talking about the 40% in power lifters. when you actually follow through, they put a, a nice little um, flow chart, and I put it on Instagram yesterday because I just thought it was really interesting. But they found as many women actually got better after starting lifting <laughs> as got worse in terms of their incontinence. So there were a lot of women who were incontinent before they started powerlifting, but they found some women actually got better. So as they generally got stronger, their symptoms improved. So that's also something to consider. So for some people, it doesn't necessarily get worse. They actually find that as they train, and maybe that's something to do with them getting better technique, better coaching, who knows, there could be multiple factors. We can't really hypothesize too much on that. But there is always that chance too that some people will get better. So, it's it's a bit of an unknown.
0: Okay. that Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, So, man, we have so many questions written down. <laughs> we have so much to learn. Uh, so, I do want to move on to another topic that I really am eager to learn about. Pregnancy. So, your client comes to you and says, good news, I'm pregnant. Uh, I would imagine the first thing you say is congratulations. But what after that? What are the current guidelines uh, when it comes to training through pregnancy, you know, from first trimester to beyond?
1: Hold on. I I got one thing to say really quickly before I think Marika can jump in on this, but actually the interesting thing about what you said, Eric, about saying congratulations is we typically recommend, and this might sound very nuanced, but we typically recommend saying, oh my gosh, like in, in a somewhat excited way, like how are you feeling? And oh, the reason okay. is because so many women, depending on their situation, like pregnancy, as it's a misconception that it is always an incredibly exciting time for women. There are some women who are terrified of being pregnant, there are women who didn't want to get pregnant. There are women who had trauma or PTSD from their last birth. There are women who um, have lost children and are scared to death of losing children again. So um, I know that seems like a little bit of a, of a like, wah, wah, you know, kind of like perspective on it. But I do. And, and when you say, Oh, my gosh, congratulations, that's so amazing. Um, depending on your relationship with them, like, uh, you you might not be giving them the space to feel like they can actually tell you how they're feeling about it, whether that's terrified, scared, whatever. So when someone says, uh, you know, I, well, generally you can kind of tell on their face, right. They're like, I have something to tell you I'm pregnant. Or they're like, I need to tell you something. Um, I'm pregnant. Right. So you can often tell, but my response is generally like, oh my gosh, how are you feeling? And it's still a very like you know, kind of upbeat, like perspective, but how are you feeling really gives them the space to hopefully be feel like they can be a little bit more honest rather than like, congratulations, that's amazing. So that's one little thing that I wanted to pipe up and say really quickly before Marika jumps in. And she might have even forgotten your question, because now I've kind of forgotten your question.
0: <laughs> so yeah, the question was, uh, you know, y- you learn that your client is now pregnant. And uh, as the coach, Where do you go from there, Uh, you know, early in the pregnancy and then progressing throughout the pregnancy? uh, How does that affect our programming and training decisions?
2: So one of the things that's probably really important to mention is that we'll get to screening in a second, but depending on where people are in the world, and I'm sure your listener group is pretty pretty well spread but there are different regulations and so one of the things that we really encourage at girls gone strong is that coaches and trainers reach out to their regulatory body if there is one because it can be a bit of a what what, what's the term you use a little bit not not a shit shit show show, but (laughs) shit shows no you said like it's like cowboy oh wild wild west yeah it's the Wild Wild West, yes, that's it. Molly did say it sometimes a bit like the Wild Wild West in in fitness, in health and fitness. But um, we we really encourage people to reach out to whoever they're sort of certified with and say, hey, look, am I am I qualified to look after pregnant women? Is there anything I need to anything extra that I need to do? Check with your insurance body too to make sure you're covered um, to look after pregnant women because. In some cases, it may be that you need a little bit of extra training for that. So we just encourage people to make sure that they have the knowledge base, um, the, the bare minimum because it's usually very, very, very minimum um, in most training regulation uh, training bodies. So make sure you've at least got that and that you're legally covered to look after women. And then the next thing we want to do is make sure there's a screening process in place. And legally, that is something that if you're looking after pregnant women, you should do. So there is a pregnancy PQ form that you can... Um, send to your client in advance um, ideally and get them to fill it in and get their doctor to sign it off to make sure that they're safe to exercise so with pregnancy the probably the key thing really is to make sure that we're really looking after the safety of the mother and the baby and this is from the start right so when they're signed off by their doctor it's making sure that there's no contraindications Um, it can be tricky in the first trimester because sometimes i haven't really seen a doctor um, or they may not know. So that that's where it becomes a little bit grey. But certainly moving on, once they're sort of in that healthcare team, we've got to make sure that they're safe to exercise. Um, and there's a whole lot of, if you want to go into the, um, if you want a, like a summary list of the contraindications and precautions and things like that, the Canadian guidelines that were put out uh, 2019, I think are are really, really good. They're very comprehensive. And I think I would encourage your listeners just to go and have a look at that because that will give them an idea of you know who are the people that I shouldn't be seeing and it's it's pretty self explanatory you know um, but I just think from a safety perspective that that's a really a really good idea to 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 start from there um, okay so moving on so do you want to talk mostly about lifting side of things
0: yeah I would say so
2: so first things first um
1: you know the pendulum has swung a bit when it comes to women and strength training during pregnancy so for a long time it was a lot of folks recommended like oh pregnant women you know they're pretty fragile they need to walk and maybe do yoga and light stretching and that pendulum has swung all the way over to like they can compete in powerlifting and crossfit and you know they can do whatever they want and you know women pregnant women are strong and so we like to say pregnant women are neither fragile nor bulletproof (laughs) they are strong and resilient um A combination of strength training and cardiovascular exercise is recommended in pregnancy. Um, 150 minutes per week is, I believe, the minimum recommendation, Um, and that's supposed to be spread out over at least three days. Um, a week, and there are two really prevalent myths when it comes to women in strength training during pregnancy. And the first is that um, if you were not exercising prior to pregnancy, you shouldn't start because you shouldn't start anything new. And the other is that um, you can keep doing whatever you were doing prior to pregnancy. So first one, we'll tackle the first one. Um, You shouldn't start anything new in pregnancy. That's actually not true. As long as you are cleared by your doctor for exercise. And like Marika said, you don't have any absolute or relative contraindications. It is fine to start um, exercising, both strength training and doing cardiovascular exercise during pregnancy. But the caveat is that if you were sedentary or didn't exercise prior to pregnancy, that you should not exercise above like a moderate intensity. So like a six or seven out of 10 on a perceived effort scale. Um, And that goes for both strength training and cardiovascular exercise. And then the idea that you can keep doing whatever you were doing prior to pregnancy is also not exactly accurate. Um, number one, HIT, high intensity interval training, is contraindicated during pregnancy. So that would be, um, I'm sure most of your listeners are familiar with what HIT is, but essentially during the work periods of HIT, you are working at 9.5 to 10 out of 10 on a perceived effort scale. So you're essentially pushing yourself to the absolute max. Um, that is not recommended. However, if you were exercising vigorously, Prior to pregnancy, you can still exercise vigorously in pregnancy, and that's defined as about a seven to eight and a half out of uh, ten on a perceived effort scale. But as you get more pregnant, you will probably feel like you are working harder doing less. Um, So, you know, what you are doing to achieve that like perceived effort might be different. But if as long as you stay in that range, there there were. Previously, recommendations about women not letting their heart rate get over 140 beats per minute. Um, And as far as I know, they found that rate of perceived exertion um, or perceived effort is a more accurate indicator of what's safe um, during pregnancy. And also, you want to make sure that your client is well hydrated and that she's not overheating. Both of those things are very important. And then during first trimester, a lot of women are going to experience morning sickness, which a lot of them say is all day sickness, nausea, exhaustion. Um so a lot of women find that in their first trimester maybe they're less motivated to work out, they're not really feeling it, they're again dealing with a lot of exhaustion, dealing with some emotional overwhelm of finding out that they're pregnant. Um, but for the most part in the first trimester, and Marika, you can hop in if you have anything else to say about this, but for the most part in the first trimester, if they are feeling okay, as long as they are staying hydrated, um, they're not overheating. Um, and they're, you know, listening, quote unquote, listening to their body in terms of their nausea and exhaustion levels and things, they can do, for the most part, what they were doing prior to pregnancy with the exception of high intensity interval training.
3: So for for both of those contexts, either people starting new exercise or continuing what they were doing before, it sounded like both of the, the types of things that would be contraindicated would be intensity getting too high. Why is that particularly problematic and contraindicated for pregnant women?
2: Probably one of the difficulties we have with research in pregnancy is there's a lot of ethical concerns. Um, so we don't stick women on a, you know, VO2 max test and just basically thrash <laughs> them to see what happens. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> And and same, same with same with um, lifting really heavy too. We don't have a lot of data on that. But um, what, what they have found in studies in elite athletes is that once people get past about sort of 90% um VO2 max, there does seem to be a reduction in blood flow to the to the baby. Mm, Um, And it's probably transient. Uh, It seems to be transient and it's it might be okay, but they just don't know. Um, So that's why the recommendations are to sit around that sort of generally speaking 12 to 14 on the Borg scale. Um, So women can, if they're pretty fit, they can work at a more vigorous, um, a vigorous level and that seems to be okay. Uh, but certainly, if people want to be working at that really high level, they should be doing it under the care of the healthcare team um, and be really closely monitored. So that's certainly with your elite athletes. That's, that's the ideal. They'll be working really closely, probably with exercise physiologists and the obstetricians, um, as well as the physiotherapists as, as a bit of a team. Um, I just want to make a note on the, the ratings of perceived exertion. Along with that, um, we, we use that general for the general population and it seems to be a really useful measure. But in terms of correlation between um, RPE and heart rate in pregnancy, the RPE does underestimate the heart rate by about 15 to 20 beats per minute, something like that. So when, if you're working at a moderate intensity, absolutely fine, and it's the easiest, and that's what we use all the time. But if someone is working at a higher level, um, RPE becomes less accurate, and that's when we would recommend people probably to use a um, heart rate monitor as well. And probably, you know, and I, I. this is so individual, of course, but, you know, stick around sort of that up to 160 kind of thing is probably about right. But, yeah, just most of us are working with the general population, so uh, RP is fine.
1: Yeah, and that's why we also use the... Um- rating out of like one to 10 instead of the Borg scale. Cause that general population is like, wait, at 12 to 14 out of 20. You know what I mean? They're not. like, that's so weird. Why don't, why don't we just say six to seven out of 10? So we have kind of translated that to be more relevant to general population.
3: Gotcha. One, uh, one other thing I've heard that, I don't know if there's any truth to this or not, but one of the things I've heard is that, um, for a long time resistance training wasn't recommended to pregnant women, One of the reasons being that, um, due to elevations in relaxin, especially during the last trimester, that joint instability would be a problem. And you try to train somewhat heavy and all of your joints explode. Is there, is there any truth to that? Or like just a kernel of truth or, you know, do do pregnant women need to be concerned about heavy resistance training for like relaxin related reasons?
2: I lost a little bit of audio there. Did you say something about joints exploding?
3: <laughs> yeah, I, I was I was being hyperbolic.
2: <laughs> yeah ah uh, <laughs> oh, relaxin, oh, it's an interesting topic, isn't it? So relaxin, um it actually peaks relatively early in pregnancy, so it doesn't actually get higher in the later stages. So pregnancy, the, the hormone is designed obviously to help us get ready for childbirth. So it softens the ligaments re- predominantly around the pelvis is where it acts and it helps us to open up the pelvis to deliver a baby. So it, it serves a very important purpose. There's been a lot of, I think, talk over the years about probably uh, a lot to do with overstretching. There's a lot of fear-mongering, I think, that you know women need to be really careful with their stretching and that, that, because the relaxant's in there and everything's really floppy and you're probably going to, do damage but you know that doesn't bear out um it doesn't bear out the research and certainly clinically i don't i don't have hundreds of yogis coming in with you know really damaged joints and muscles so i don't think from a stretching perspective that that is such a big deal um in terms of lifting probably we don't think i don't see that many issues in terms of joint problems but what you will find clinically is a lot of people will self-limit what they lift anyway so if you're talking about your, your power lifters and, and people working at those um, higher percentages of 1RM, we, the bigger concerns that we have regarding that will be the Valsalva, which is contraindicated in pregnancy, which we didn't, we didn't get to. Oh, but yes. Mm-hmm. That is important to, yeah, that's important to understand. So the Valsalva is, is contraindicated in pregnancy because it, or well, two reasons really. One is because it creates a um, spike in blood pressure and again, that could have an effect on the baby. So you got to remember, in pregnancy, we've got around about forty to fifty percent increase in blood volume. Um, the cardiac output is hugely increased. You know that your your heart and lungs are working a bloody lot harder when you're pregnant. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, even in the first trimester, you've got forty percent increase in blood volume. So that's why, even though you, your baby's the size of a peanut, you're like, why is this so hard? Like it's just exhausting. And and I'm trying to run, but I've got I've got no spring in my step. So um, so there's all these cardiovascular changes that we need to take into account. So, so that's one thing with the valsalva, And the other thing is that, again, you know, we talked about intra-abdominal pressure and pressure on pelvic floor. Um, in pregnancy, especially as the pregnancy progresses, you can imagine if you're doing those really big heavy lifts and you're creating um, a lot of intra-abdominal pressure, that pressure is going to go down into the pelvic floor into, or into the abdominal wall. So a lot of women we, we coach over time, if they're experienced lifters, we actually do anticipate that the numbers that they're lifting or the, the volume that they're lifting is actually going to reduce with time. So when you're talking about the the joint side of things, if you're coaching people and you're supporting them and you're you know observing them and you're also letting them know that, and Molly can talk to the coaching side of this, but the expectation is that you're, you're probably not even going to be able to maintain what you've got if you're an experienced lifter. Now, Interestingly, on the topic of less experienced lifters, there actually have been studies where they've taken pregnant women and they've put them through a strength training program in pregnancy who have never done any kind of strength training before. And they've had really good effects and they've had really good results in terms of like they've actually been able to um, improve what they're lifting. And this is that sort of, what do you call it? The newbie response. Newbie gains,
1: yeah.
2: (laughs) Newbie gains, thank you. So pregnant women can have newbie gains as well um and what they found is that there were no in they they haven't shown an increase in musculoskeletal problems so they're not finding women who start lifting weights in pregnancies and obviously these are like you know i think they were 12 to 15 reps so they're much lower um, in terms of the intensity of the weights that they're lifting but they're not gonna they're not having knee problems and back problems and stuff um when they're working within those ranges Uh, um that's something that we know from the research and there really hasn't been a lot of research done at the higher Um, higher level to be honest but i i do think that I, i don't see it a lot i don't have a lot of you know lifters coming in with knee problems and back problems in pregnancy if they're coached well
1: Yeah, like Marika and I had a conversation about that the other day, again, the the ethical considerations of doing research in pregnant women, it's like, it's going to be difficult to get approved for a study that's like, okay, so let's have some of them lifting around 70 to 75% and some of them lifting around 90 to 95% and see what happens. Because like, the question is like, why? You know what I mean? Like, that's like, that's potentially putting mother and baby at risk. And like, is it really necessary to to study that and see what the differences would be. So like Marika said, there's just not a lot of um, research with uh, pregnant women lifting at those really high intensities in pregnancy.
0: Yeah, that's extremely believable. One time an IRB gave me a lot of trouble because they thought the dose of crystal light that I was giving healthy young people was just a little (laughs) bit too high. So uh, I'm sure that 90, 95% with pregnant women is going to be hard to get by them.
3: I, I, I can imagine how that conversation would go like, Do you think this is going to kill any babies?
0: I don't think so. Hard Uh, to say. I mean, we haven't. Well, we don't
3: know, but let's find out. Yeah, that's what we're trying to investigate.
0: If I knew the answer, would I be running the study? (laughs) (laughs) Oh my (laughs) god. All right. Um, so most so, of what we've talked about I'm, – I'm sorry. Go ahead, Molly.
1: Well, I was going to say, so we've covered trimester one. Things change a little bit, though, in two and three. And like I said, I'll kind of give a brief overview and let Marika fill in any gaps. So trimester two, obviously belly's getting a little bit bigger. Um, and I believe uh, – I think this was a recent addition, but barbell Olympic lifting has now been – um, added to the list of contraindicated activities. So there are things obviously like scuba diving and skydiving and things like that that are contraindicated in pregnancy. Uh, Barbell Olympic lifting has been added to that as well, simply because the as the belly gets bigger with the path of the bar, it could, uh, you obviously risk fetal impact and trauma. And, or the woman having to change her technique, such, so to avoid her belly such that it might be dangerous for her as well. So, um, I can't, like I said, I can't remember if that was a recent addition, but I think it, I think it was, um, so
2: trimester yeah, two. Yeah, it is pretty recent.
1: Yeah. Belly starts getting bigger. Um, so, it so that's happening and then there's also this is generally though when women feel tend to feel like best in their pregnancy they tend to have a little bit more energy for a lot of them the nausea has subsided and they um you know their belly hasn't gotten so big that it's starting to really impede what they're doing in the gym so trimester 2 is when a lot of women start to feel more like themselves a couple things to keep in mind so there are um some folks who recommend pregnant women not lying on their back After 16 weeks of pregnancy, there have been other people who recommend that starting at about 28 weeks in pregnancy. So the idea is when a woman is lying on her back, that the pressure of the baby, the weight of the baby is is pressing on her vena cava, reducing blood flow. But the interesting thing is that if a woman is lying on her back and exercising, that blood flow is only reduced by about 50%. Um, And you have to imagine that women are lying on their backs oftentimes while they're sleeping. And also if they're on an exam table. So um, it's one of those tricky things where uh, some folks say you should absolutely avoid it starting at 16 weeks. Some folks say, you know, you don't have to start avoiding it until 28 weeks. Some folks say it's not really a big deal as long as she's not lying on her back. She's only lying on her back for short bouts, but I believe short bouts is not actually well defined. Um, And then other folks say it's not a big deal unless she starts experiencing uh, dizziness, fatigue, nausea, things like that. Um, and so, but the the good news is, all of those things can be alleviated if you just elevate her head by about fifteen percent. So, in general, when it comes to lying on your back during pregnancy, it's o- probably okay for short bouts, particularly if you're exercising. Uh, we, I would define short bouts as probably thirty to sixty seconds, so enough to do a set of glute bridges or something like that. Um, But pay close attention to the symptoms that you're having. And if you are having symptoms and or if you want to be extra safe, you can elevate your head by about 15% or upper body by about 15%. Um, and then again, later in the second trimester, as the belly starts to grow, that's when you start seeing the abdominal separation or diastasis recti. Um, and again, that's diastasis recti, diastasis recti. There's a million different ways to say it. DR, DRA, DRAM. There's all kinds of different, different ways to say it. We we typically say diastasis recti. So you start to see more um, separation of the abdominal muscles and that is to accommodate the uh, growing baby. And it's totally normal. And there's evidence to suggest that up to 100% of women experience some um, diastasis recti, some separation of the abdominal muscles in pregnancy. It's getting a lot of attention right now. Um, and Marika can speak to it a little bit more and how it uh, you know affects pelvic health or is or isn't correlated to pelvic health. But a lot of women are... Um, yeah, feeling really concerned about it. They're feeling concerned about how their stomach looks post-pregnancy, um, you know, or and or they're learning that um, they have diastasis recti and that might be affecting the way that their, you know, that their stomach looks post-pregnancy, and that there's actually something that they can do about it up to a point. So um, that becomes a bigger concern in the second trimester. So we generally around like late second trimester, early third trimester, um, and again, Marika can speak to this. There's no. Uh, definitive research saying what types of exercises make diastasis recti worse in pregnancy. Um, however, we think it's probably prudent to avoid exercises that put a ton of kind of stress on the belly. So, like the belly where it's kind of hanging down, like maybe a push up position or a plank position. Um, and so, and again, you don't, you don't even have to avoid those altogether. You could elevate your hands slightly to reduce the amount of um, stress or pressure that it's putting on the linea alba, which is the connective tissue that starts to thin and separate um, in diastasis recti. And then uh, obviously as the weight of the baby um, starts, you know, baby starts growing weighs more, puts more downward pressure on the pelvic floor, um, just being mindful of the high impact exercises that you're doing. So if exercises are causing pain, if they're causing leaking or pelvic floor symptoms, if you're feeling heaviness or dragging, if you are feeling um, like something's falling out, if you are doing an exercise and you see what's called like doming or coning, so basically it looks like like the linea alba, the middle of your abdominal wall is kind of like pressing out or, or coning more so than just like the roundness of your belly, um, or yeah, other high impact exercises we generally reduce, or we generally tell most people, um, that reducing those types of exercises is going to be, um, beneficial for them later in their second trimester, early
2: third trimester.
0: Awesome. And so uh, That's the- such
2: a good summary. <laughs> yeah, I was I was
0: waiting for Marika to, to chime in, but it sounds like a couple of things. Oh, okay, she's yeah.
2: she smashed it. She's amazing. Um with the trajectory, uh so one of the things with the lift with the lifting side of things is that when you have to bring the bar past your belly, probably the, there's probably two concerns with that. One is um obviously we talked about the Valsalva and all that kind of stuff with the heavier styles of lifting, but just there's that concern that you might Um, basically smash bash your belly on the way through so there's you know within the the recommendations we're we're really trying to avoid um, exercises where people are at a high risk of falling or a high risk of abdominal impact so even things like I mean I know you guys probably don't do this in your gyms but box jumps and things like that we'd probably um, avoid as well because you actually interestingly you're three times more likely to fall in pregnancy Um, and I can say this from experience too as I had a couple of massive stacks in my pregnancy and it's um Yes, yeah, so it's just something to be aware of in terms of programming. If you're doing other types of programming, it's just just be aware that their balance can be a bit off, and also that you can have low blood pressure, which means getting up and down a lot can can increase dizziness and stuff like that. Um, with the trajectory of the bar, then just sometimes simple things like changing changing it like a, a bar lift to a couple of kettlebells or a couple of dumbbells, or just or um using the the, the is it called the trap bar that that the hexagonal kind of one with the what's it called
3: yeah uh, either a, either a trap bar or a hex bar
2: yeah so things like that can be really can be useful as well for for i find in pregnancy just in terms of the positioning just having your hands by your side can feel um more comfortable i know that doesn't tend to go past the belly anyway but um it's something that seems to be quite well tolerated um i think you got all of the main things in terms of the second trimester molly um and you talked about heat and all that kind of stuff so yeah no i think that was a fantastic summary
0: (laughs) so are we ready to move on to the third and final trimester
1: yeah i think so i like i said i kind of started um covering that a little bit uh in terms of second trimester end of second trimester beginning of third and again in third trimester um depending on you know how they're feeling how far along they are they generally tend to start again kind of feeling more tired. Um, the belly's getting in the way. A lot of times they're feeling maybe, you know, it feels like just getting up and, uh, in and out of bed and in and out of the shower or in and out of their car feels like a little bit of a workout. Um, and so, yeah, they, uh, like, as Marika has mentioned, they generally kind of start to self limit what they're doing a little bit. Things might just, it might just feel weird to go hard in pregnancy to, you know, to sprint or to lift really heavy or whatever. They just don't, it just doesn't feel right anymore. Um, But I mean, the general principles of strength and conditioning apply here. So I mean, pregnant women can squat, they can deadlift, they can press, they can pull, they can lunge, they can carry, they can do, you know, all of the same like principles of strength and conditioning apply to them, they just might be again, dealing with um they might be more likely to be symptomatic experiencing that pelvic pain, heaviness, incontinence, leaking, um symphysis pubis dysfunction. Marika, you want to jump in and talk about that?
2: Uh yeah. So pelvic girdle pain in pregnancy is really really common. Uh pelvic girdle pain and low back pain and um, we kind of group it all together in many cases cuz sometimes we can't tell where it's coming from, but Generally, with pelvic girdle pain, you either feel it around the front, like around the pubic symphysis, and it feels a bit—it feels quite sharp. Like women will say, it feels like someone's sort of stabbing them in the groin, um, or they might feel pain around the sacroiliac joints, and they'll often describe that as a pain in the butt. Some women will 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 say to you, "Oh, I've got sciatica," um, but it actually, they don't get any pins and needles or numbness. They don't get any pain radiating much past the buttocks. So it seems to be a little bit more localized than that. So that's, you know, low back and pelvic pain, really, really common in pregnancy. And it's one of those things that, again, like we, we sort of like blame everything on relaxing but it's probably a combination of, you know, some of the hormonal changes, but you've got all this extra weight. Um, you've got changes in the centre of gravity, your muscles, so your abdominal wall has been like stretched around this growing belly and you can't, you actually physically can't generate as much um, force through your abdominal wall. And they've done studies in that. You're actually You are weaker in your abdominal wall. Um, because it's obviously in a more lengthened position. So there's all these factors together, which just mean that women are a bit more susceptible to pain um, around the front or the back of the pelvis. And that can limit in terms of um, exercise. So a lot of your, so deadlifts, squats, where your feet are parallel, um, you've got two feet on the ground. I don't, I actually find that you can usually get away with those um, much more than anything on one leg mm-hmm. or in a split position, like um Split squats are usually okay and you can, if they're getting pelvic girdle pain, if you just shorten the stance a little bit, they'll usually be fine. But things like walking lunges will often be problematic or anything, like I said, anything standing on one leg or um, where where the forces through the pelvis are quite different from one side to the other. So, for instance, if you're doing a bridge and you try to lift one leg, that's often problematic or even sometimes simple things like if someone's on all fours and they lift one arm and leg, you know, like the bird dog kind of stuff. Um, even that can be quite painful, but you can, in a gym situation, you can usually modify, I find, modify most exercises so that you can keep people working through their pregnancy. And, you know, one of the things we, I guess we didn't touch on earlier because we could probably talk for hours, but in terms of the benefits of exercise in pregnancy, they're really substantial and um, all the research supports this. There are so many benefits for exercise in pregnancy to mum and to baby, Um And we really, as health and fitness professionals, we want to support women to continue working out in whatever is their preferred, you know, style, form for as long as possible. Because, you know, if they've got a little bit of pain and you can adjust that and keep them working out and keep them strength training, they're going to get all the benefits of strength training, but they're also in in an environment where they're having fun. You know, they're socialising with you guys and the people that they really enjoy spending time with. Um, So there's all the physical, but also the psychological benefits of exercise and so um so i I really i guess i encourage people to yes as a coach if someone has pain modify the exercise see if you can get them to reduce the pain so they can continue if it's persisting um always refer on to uh, you know, the health practitioner to make sure there's nothing more sinister going on. There are some random things in pregnancy, like you can get a transient osteoporosis in the hip and things like that, where for some reason, the baby, I guess, starts stealing some calcium out of mum. So anything that just doesn't kind of feel right, just trust your gut and always refer on when it comes to pain. Um, but absolutely, you know, if we want to keep them exercising for as long as possible, um, modifications can really work for pelvic girdle pain. And, Marika,
1: aren't also wide stance exercises like a sumo deadlift or even a squat with a little bit wider stance? Um, Women who are having SPD find that that can aggravate it, so doing things with a little bit closer stance, like you said, feet a little bit closer together,
2: toes straight ahead is helpful? It's – look, I go with trial and error on that, Mm -hmm. Molly. So some people actually – yeah, I mean, when you go really, really wide, yes, but I I find that sort of like your sumo stance – for most people, it's actually not that bad. I, th- mm. I think it's more that forward, backward, or or single leg that's worse. But you might actually find with someone that you just turn their feet outwards, you put them into a little bit of external rotation, and that feels more comfortable. So I- I'd encourage a little bit of trial and error, a little bit of experimentation with that. Mm-hmm. And there's like- no, there's no answer. No and like answer. you
1: said, to, um, to encourage them to keep lifting, just, you know, be careful not to catastrophize what they're feeling and help you know, remind them that they're strong and resilient and they should let you know if they're experiencing any symptoms, but there's a lot that, you know, they can do in pregnancy and a lot that you can do to help make sure that they can continue exercising in pregnancy. I mean, I am not a, have uh, not been pregnant. I'm not a mother myself, but I've worked with a ton of moms and I know that, um, you know, motherhood is a, you know, sport that requires a lot of strength That's a full contact sport requires a lot of strength. Um, And so having women, you know, be able to, like you said, spend that time in pregnancy, um, getting stronger, staying connected with their body, they get the psychological benefits of lifting, they often find a lot of community um, in lifting. And uh, yeah, it's just it's so beneficial for them. And uh, Marika, what does the research say about exercising during pregnancy in terms of helping speed up postpartum recovery?
2: I do think there is some that says that it's a quicker recovery, certainly better subjective experience of pregnancy. I do think there is something that, that means that they have a better postnatal recovery, but I can't think actually off the top of my head. Sorry, Molly. No, I thought I remembered that as well. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, we can it sounds we can, familiar. Yeah,
1: <laughs> we can dive. I mean, you can only remember seven hundred and eighty-two stats from you know a fifteen hundred studies. Um, we yeah, we can jump into the postpartum, the birth and postpartum recovery. If you all want to go there.
0: Yeah, I, I think uh, this, this particular conversation would be incomplete if we didn't at least address, you know, uh, how to uh, manage that period after birth in terms of training.
2: All right. So in terms of childbirth, obviously, the the two main ways you get a baby out is through a vaginal delivery or vaginal birth. Um, <laughs> the midwives will often say pizzas get delivered, not babies. So I need to <laughs> sort of keep stop, uh, stop myself <laughs> from saying that. Um, but a, a vaginal birth or a, or a cesarean section and um, as a coach and trainer you do want to have an understanding of the kind of birth that they've had um, we we have a postnatal park you and I don't know Molly if you want to like share that uh, yeah. later and just to share it with your audience if you want to use that um, and that's quite comprehensive but we actually do want to know what kind of birth they had because it will affect their return to exercise and um, how far you're going to push them so in terms of a vaginal birth um at, this, at its sort of most simplest level, you'll have a vaginal birth where there's no complications, they haven't used any instruments, the recovery has been straightforward. Um, and with those women, they may well find that they recover relatively quickly. And what I will say about postnatal recovery, and um, it's really tricky to give timelines, and I'm very, very careful with my clients not to say, oh, you should be back to doing X, Y and Z by three months or six mm-hmm. months or a year i keep it really really vague and the reason for that is like you know i've i've run exercise classes for a long time with with postnatal women and the recovery is so variable and i do think as a whole like the women who are stronger and fitter before they come into pregnancy they do tend to like in my experience they do tend to do better postnatally and whether that is that they've got some more baseline strength or whether they've just got better um uh like neuromuscular you know you know pfft, whatever <laughs> um, uh, connections and things like that who, who knows but they do, they do tend to recover a bit quicker but you know we often say it takes nine months to make a baby and it takes about nine to 12 months to recover so you know when it comes to vaginal birth you might well find that someone at six weeks if they're recovering fine they're back in the gym they're doing some light weights they're doing some training they're back to running maybe four months increasing load through lifting but you know it, it really does take months rather than weeks to recover in terms of that birth screening, though, probably some of the things that are going to flag up for us as being more of a high risk would be someone who has had a perineal tear. So um, f- for you fellas, I don't know if you're, you're, you're dads, but um, a perineal tear is is when there is, during the during the delivery, during the birth, there is a tear from the vagina towards the anus and that is in that pushing stage of labour. Stage, um, sorry, time. Um, You can get a grade one or grade two tear is quite superficial. They'll stitch that up. Many women will do fine with that. When you start going into a grade three or four tear, so if someone writes grade three or four tear on their screening form, I would encourage a follow-up question of, okay, are you seeing the pelvic health physio? Um, Is this something that you have any concerns about? Um, Once you get to a three or four tear, it involves the back passage basically, so the um, anal sphincter. And so we do worry about fecal incontinence, and really, those women should be having follow-up care. And I would encourage them to do that. From the um, and then from in terms of the other thing in the vaginal delivery is uh, there you go, I said it again. Vaginal birth is the <laughs> forceps. So forceps, which I often call the big salad servers, if you've ever seen them, that's kind of what they look like. So it's when they put the big salad servers in to help um, help bring out the baby. Uh, the problem with forceps is that they do a lot of damage um, to the pelvic floor. If someone has had a forceps delivery, that is, again, a higher risk in terms of pelvic floor dysfunction, and it's something like, I want to say, three or four times the risk of prolapse. It's, it's really high. So if someone's had a forceps delivery and they've ticked that in the little box, that would be another person. Just to have that follow-up follow up, um, question, you know, un- are you under the care of a pelvic health physio, Um, we'd recommend that you just make sure that you get things checked out because, you know, if you want to get back to lifting, you know, your 3RM, 1RM, you know, we really want to make sure that you're safe to do that. So they would be the higher risk from that perspective. Now we talk about a C-section. So C-section obviously is abdominal wall surgery. And I think sometimes it's a little bit dismissed in a way as being, I don't know, the easy way out or it's easy to recover from or you know all sorts of stuff but ultimately it is major abdominal surgery and people do need time to recover from that if you look at the research in terms of how strong that scar is um because i don't know whether whether you guys have the mindset which is what i had before i did a lot of pre and postnatal training was that oh you know after six weeks things are pretty well healed just crack on and you know gradually increase you know as as you feel comfortable. And that, that tended to be the advice. And after C-section, you know, after six weeks, the scar's pretty well healed, off you go. But actually, the the strength of that abdominal fascia is only about 50 to 60% at six weeks. And even by six to seven months, you're about 70 to 90%. So it does take quite a long time to build up that strength of the abdominal wall again. So it's just keeping in mind, I guess the the concepts of tissue healing because i think when it comes to postnatal recovery i often say to my clients look it's a bit like having an acl reconstruction right so we don't say to people okay you've had you've had surgery to your knee um, give it six weeks rest and then just gradually go back to doing the things that you want to do we don't we don't we look at range of motion we look at strength we look at function we load it up we we really build on that strength and we build at the power and we work on the um, sports specific drills and that's how I see the postpartum recovery, um, and that's something that we teach at Girls Gone Strong as well—is to get that foundation stuff early. But then thinking, like, what is that person's goals, and how can I get them there? Knowing that it could take months rather than weeks, and work it through the stages and tick those boxes in terms of what they need to do, rather than we do this for six weeks and then we do this for six weeks. If that make does that make sense? <laughs> yeah, I um. As we were working
1: on our pre and postnatal coaching certification, my partner Casey actually had a full rupture of his patella tendon and had to have surgery, and you know had this very, um, very specific and intentional protocol, like physical therapy protocol and recovery, and just slow return to activity and movement. And it was at the time that we were working on the certification, and I was hearing stories from women who literally have to beg their Doctor for a referral to a physical therapist post C section, and it was so infuriating to me that there was such a um, such an obvious and clear and well defined and intentional protocol to help you know someone who who uh, ruptured their patellate and to return to activity, but women have a C-section, have major abdominal surgery, are then caring for an infant, often alone, you know, if they're, they might be lucky if their partner gets two weeks of paternity leave, and then people ask him why he's taking so long off work um, to help her with the baby. She's having major abdominal surgery, and there's no, you know, no automatic referral to a pelvic health physical therapist. That depends on where you live, um, based in the U.S., obviously, so um, there's not an automatic referral here. And many women, um, tell me that they have to fight with their doctor to get a referral to pelvic health, physical therapy, post delivery. Um, and two other really that are related, really big myths about returning to exercise post-pregnancy, similar to what Marika said, number one is that you can't do anything for six weeks. And number two is that at six weeks, you're automatically good to go back to whatever you want. So, um, in the first six weeks. And again, Marika, as Marika said, the women's recoveries are going to be so variable depending on the type of birth that they had. And again, what they were doing prior to delivery, how they're feeling, what kind of support they have at home, you know, what's going on with their baby. Is their baby sleeping at all? Are they breastfeeding? Are they not? You know, what other stuff's going on? Are they having postpartum depression? Do they have, you know, postpartum PTSD? Um, just based on what's going on. And again, giving hard and fast guidelines is not particularly useful. And also giving people no direction is not very useful. So at GGS, we, we typically break down the postpartum recovery into three phases. And so the first six weeks-ish um, which, and again, it's, it's six weeks of time, but that might start for women at two weeks post-delivery or three weeks post-delivery, four weeks. Um, the first six weeks are the rehab and recovery phase. Week seven to 18 are going to be returning to exercise. And then weeks 18 to 42 is what we call bulletproof your body. And the zero to six weeks, the first few weeks literally just starts off with some gentle breathing exercises. And in that first, and after about two weeks of just doing gentle breathing exercises, we, we add in some gentle body weight movement And the really important key here is that these should be no more strenuous than the activities of daily living. So, you know, we tell women not to do anything for six weeks, but they're squatting up and down off the toilet. They are carrying their baby. If they have other children who weigh 20, 30, 40 pounds, they're probably picking them up and holding them. They're, you know, bending over and getting stuff out of the dishwasher, whatever. They're doing all these household tasks, right, with that, you know, we're telling them they can't, they can't do um, you know, exercise, like, like bending over and getting something like out of the dishwasher, or picking up your 40 pound child, like doing a glute bridge on the ground with a lot of intention and a specific breathing exercise is probably going to be less quote unquote dangerous than bending over and picking up your 40 pound child after you, you know, had a a C-section two or three weeks ago. So it's Mm -hmm. like, um, kind of reminds me of when we say like strength training is dangerous for kids. And then you throw them like into like, you know, field sports or whatever, where they're doing all kinds of activity in a completely uncontrolled environment. And we're expecting them to be able to do that with no like formal strength training or like solid, you know, controlled environment um, uh, experience in the gym. So it's kind of like that. So we generally within the first two weeks, a lot of breathing exercises, rest, maybe some light walking 10 minutes at a time, something like that, but making sure that they're really prioritizing rest the next three to four weeks, um, you know, maybe some like, Glute bridges, clamshells, wall slides, maybe some like bodyweight squats or bodyweight box squats. But again, very gentle, um, only if they feel up to it and making sure that they are spending plenty of time resting. But for a lot of women, it's going to feel good to kind of get up and move their body around a little bit. And then in the seven to 18 week period, if they're feeling okay, that's when we gently start incorporating them back into exercise. So maybe again, doing some more, you know, body weight squats or very lightly loaded squats, some step-ups, um, you know, light inverted rows, band pull-aparts, just again, the gentle, just very progressively, retur- and slowly and progressively returning them back to exercise. Um, around week 18, which Marika was saying around like month four, um, you can often start bumping up the intensity a little bit. They can slowly maybe start returning to um a little bit heavier lifting, but now, you know, I wouldn't go too extreme, maybe start walk jogging a little bit, depending on what their recovery is like. And then from that week 18 or 19 to 42 is when, again, they keep progressing back to exercise. Maybe they're getting back into the barbell squats, um, trap bar deadlifts, you know, bench press, things like that. And then, The goal for um, the training programs and the the kind of programming that we provide is that after somewhere between week 42 and 52, which is again about 10 to 12 months, at that point, they are prepared to return to whatever activity they love. And again, that's going to be variable based on them, their birth, their, um, experiences, the support they have at home, what they were training like prior to pregnancy, but that's kind of our general timeline. So six, about six weeks of just straight rehab and recovery, gentle body weight movements, breathing, a little bit of walking about, um, uh, 12 weeks of gently returning to exercise slowly and progressively, and then about another 24 weeks of building back up into some of the more intense lifting, but still being really mindful of symptoms and progressing slowly. And then somewhere around 10 to 12 months, they should be able to return to whatever activities, more strenuous activities they love.
0: Awesome. So we're already, you know, we're all, you know, 10, 12 months postnatal at this point. And I did see a, a YouTube video, I believe it was by Marika. And I think the title said, once postnatal, always postnatal. Um, so now that we're talking tw- you know, 10, 12 months postnatal, what does that quote mean?
2: I think it's... Yeah, I don't even remember. How old is that video? Uh, <laughs> the,
0: the research department goes very deep into the archives. <laughs>
2: <laughs> i i'm i'm not very uh i'm not very good on youtube but I, I don't have a lot of content so well done on finding something um so once postnatal always postnatal i guess is something that we hear in a lot of from a lot of pelvic health physios and I, it, the reality is is that after pregnancy and childbirth for most women their body is not the same and i think that's something that we try and acknowledge in that for instance if you have a vaginal birth your pelvic floor muscles will stretch um sort of three and a half times their length um, your abdominal wall, if you've been pregnant, whether you've had a C-section or, or, or a vaginal birth, your abdominal wall does get um, stretched. And for most people, there's, there's it's a slight difference afterwards. It's not necessarily huge, um, but we are we do see you know the consequences of child uh, of pregnancy and childbirth. You know, four to eight years down the track, um, for a lot of women will start developing some pelvic floor dysfunction, um, and that could be related to age. It could be. I think sometimes I do wonder whether just as a, as a you know, like you get out of this toddler zone, right? You send your children off to daycare or off to, you know, pre-primary or whatever you call it in in America, and then you suddenly as a mum go, sweet, I've got some time to myself, I'm going to go do some boot camp. Um, if they haven't been through that process that Molly talked about, you're still at risk of public floor dysfunction, whether that is four years down the track or ten years down the track. So I think, you know, we just like to sort of acknowledge the fact that, you know, pregnancy and childbirth does change your body. Um, in, in, and in many ways, it it recovers beautifully. But there can be some lingering issues on a longer term basis. And I think it's, it's really good to address that early on. Um, but if not, if it's five years down the track, and you start having issues, there's no problem with starting some rehab at that point, too. Um, yeah, but I think we just want to keep the conversation open that it's not that well, you're one year down the track, everything is fine. Um, you're never going to have any problems. Your body is completely back to normal because I think that's a bit of a fallacy.
1: Yeah, I was going to say there's some nuance here. And I know this is going to surprise you, Eric and Greg, but people on the internet like things to be black and white. And uh, they are not comfortable with um, with saying like, well, it depends, right? So when we say once postnatal, always postnatal, or once postpartum, always postpartum, um, people... A lot of people find themselves very, really upset by that because they think that the idea is that means that women are fragile. And once they've had children, that there's something wrong with their bodies, they're fragile, they're broken, they can't ever return to activities they love. And that's just not true. It is simply an acknowledgement that their body has been through unique anatomical and physiological changes that health and fitness professionals need to understand and need to understand um you know what considerations, what symptoms, what consequences might might arise from that, and so it's not to say that they can't re- they can't be strong and resilient and powerful and even stronger than they were prior to pregnancy and return to activities they love and live you know an amazing active life. It simply means that they've been through their body's been through these experiences and that can't be ignored. And that again, like Marika said, those um, symptoms might show up later down the line. Um, when, when there's, you know, an inciting factor like pregnancy, like delivery, like menopause, a lot of women start to find that they have pelvic health considerations because there's hormonal changes. They're experiencing, you know, some vaginal atrophy or, you know, whatever. And they're, they're, you know, possibly losing muscle mass as well and bone mass and things like that. Um, and so they might not, they, they might have symptoms, pelvic floor symptoms during or after menopause that, um, their childbirth or pregnancy and childbirth contributed to, but they just didn't show up until later on down the line because basically the straw hadn't broken the camel's back yet. So yes, once, once postnatal or once postpartum, always postpartum simply means they've been through those experiences. You can't undo it. You know, people like talking about getting your body back. You, you don't ever go back to your quote unquote pre baby body because you have had a baby Your ba- your, your, ba- your body is post baby. That doesn't mean it's not a good body, a strong body, healthy body and active body, it just means that it's different. Um, and so I yeah, I think providing that nuance and context for people is really important so that they don't think that we're saying postpartum women are fragile, but that they also understand that there may be considerations and things that they, that they need to understand as a health and fitness professional.
0: Awesome. Um, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, in this hour and a half so far, we've covered a lot of ground. Um, and I do want to be respectful of your time. So we are going to wrap up pretty soon here. But you know, we kind of talked early on about how for Greg and I were kind of exploring some blind spots with this conversation. And so I know I've learned a lot in the last hour and a half. I'm sure many of our listeners have as well. One of the final questions I want to ask, obviously, we don't have a lot of time to get into details, but uh, to fuel our future Googling, what are some other blind spots that, that a lot of male coaches out there should know about? What should we, we be looking into uh, in, in terms of some of these blind spots that we we might not even be aware that we have when it comes to working with female clients?
3: Uh, unknown unknowns, to use Donald Rumsfeld's <laughs> turn of phrase.
2: <laughs> we touched a little bit at the very start on pelvic pain. Um, and I think pelvic pain is, is something that it, it's a little bit of a tricky one in terms of a coaching sense. But- the more and more I kind of look into this um, as a physiotherapist, you know, people with groin pain or back pain, um, pelvic girdle pain, abdominal pain. Um, some of this can be due. Uh, some of this can be due to pelvic floor overactivity. So I think in terms of the pelvic floor, we often come from a, a, a mindset that the pelvic floor is always weak, especially after childbirth, and we need to strengthen and strengthen. And um, I know I've had a lot of clients who have gone to, for instance, a postnatal pilates uh you know program and they've done so much pelvic floor strengthening and they've actually got developed quite a lot of pain or if they had pain it's gotten worse so i I just wanted to mention that the pelvic floor can actually be overactive and that's relatively common especially in athletes and the way that that might present and i don't you know sexual pain is probably one of the most common ones and that's probably not something that you're going to discuss with your clients when, when they're deadlifting, you know, do you have pain with intercourse? But it is on our screening form um and pain with intercourse is something that is, is is really quite common and that's something that as pelvic health physios we, we deal a lot with um but, but pelvic floor activity can also mean that people have difficulty emptying their bladder and bowel so they find that it's hard to pee or it's hard to poo um and, that, and we teach them how to actually learn to relax their pelvic floor um and the other thing is that they yeah they can just develop pain in and around the pelvis and abdominal wall so i just wanted to mention that because uh, just to put it in, in the back of your mind because it might come up at some point that this is something that that can show up and certainly really common in athletes and, and groin pain. And the pelvic floor has a lot of links to the, to the muscles around the hip. So obturator internus, prime example, hip rotator, part of the pelvic floor. So it, so you can have an overactive pelvic floor on one side that actually presents as hip pain. Um, so that's just one example. But I just wanted to mention that because I think that's something that a lot of people are not aware of and are always thinking like we have to strengthen, strengthen, strengthen the pelvic floor. But um, one of the things that we we really look at is does this pelvic floor elevate? So does the pelvic floor lift and does the pelvic floor relax? Okay. And we want to make sure that we have full range of motion of the pelvic floor, that it's not stuck in that on position, which would be like you walking around with your biceps just switched on all the time. There is a there is obviously there's a like a, a baseline level of activity of the pelvic floor. But for some people, it's way too high.
1: That was awesome.
2: <laughs> okay. All
1: right. Well, I feel like we've done a pretty thorough job of discussing, you know, a lot of strength training related pre and postnatal related topics. And, you know, at Girls Gone Strong, we specialize in covering um, women specific health, fitness and nutrition topics. And I think, you know, one of the big myths, and I've briefly touched on this, is that training, you know, that women are a niche, training women are a niche. But in our experience, around 67 to 75% of people who hire a coach or trainer are women. And women deserve to work with coaches who understand them. They deserve to um, have coaches who understand that their experiences might be different. Um, You know, we know a lot of Huge topics that we cover at Girls Gone Strong are the body image struggles that women have. So 80% of women in Canada and 81% of women in the U.S. report being dissatisfied with their body. Um, 79% of young girls, 10-year-old girls, um, or I'm sorry, 80% of 10-year-old girls are afraid of being fat. Um, 79% of young girls report opting out of important life events because they don't like the way that they look. And 85% of women report opting out of important life events, weddings, reunions, being in pictures with their kids, things like that, because they don't like the way their body looks. Um, a recent study in, I think it was 2014 from the university of South Carolina surveyed over 4,000 women, 75% of them reported engaging in some form of disordered eating, disordered eating is the highest predictor of developing an eating disorder. Eating disorders are the most deadly of all mental illnesses. Um, There's obviously all the pre and postnatal stuff that we've talked about on here today. There are considerations for working with women around their menstrual cycle. It's a really big topic. Um, Do you need to change a woman's nutrition and training around her menstrual cycle? Long story short is the uh, research does not support Blanket recommendations: How all women should change their nutrition and exercise across their cycle the same way. However, um, certainly, women—we're actually working on a big article about this at Girls Gone Strong, what the research says, and then also surveying our community and getting gathering a lot of anecdotal evidence and experiences from them about ways that they um, modify their nutrition and exercise based on their uh, based on their cycle. Um, but there's considerations there. 10% of women have endometriosis, which means often, again, really painful periods, um, which can lead to pelvic floor dysfunction. There's, you know, menopause related issues that women experience. So I just think it's important for health and fitness professionals to, um, realize that understanding how to work with women is not a niche. Women deserve coaches who understand them. Um, and there's very little evidence-based interdisciplinary comprehensive information about working with women um, available. And that's why we're really excited and proud about the stuff that we do at GGS. Um, and we're thankful to folks like you who give us a you know a platform to share it with your community, because I do think this is going to be an eye-opening, um, yeah, an eye-opening conversation for a lot of health and fitness professionals to hear. But yeah, I would say things around body image, things around disordered eating, things around women's experiences. I mean, 81% of women in the US report experiencing street harassment, that number's as high as 99% other places. Um, one third of women globally will be sexually assaulted in their lifetime. There's just a lot of experiences that women have that are, um, not saying that men never have them, it's just on average women are more likely to have them than men that affect the way that they feel about themselves, the way they feel about their bodies, the way certain environments affect them, like really aggressive gym environments. Um, so yeah, I just think there's a lot of, uh, of, of those types of topics that health and fitness professionals if they're interested in truly understanding their clients and being able to um provide a safe supportive environment in which their clients feel heard and understood there's those topics would be great ones to tackle.
0: Yeah, and you guys do really really important work um with with Girls Gone Strong uh for everyone listening, be sure to check the uh, the show notes for this episode. We're going to provide links if you'd like to stay up to date with Girls Gone Strong, uh, stay up to date with Molly and Marika and everything that they're working on. Um, this has been a really, really informative conversation. We are super thankful uh, for your time. We really appreciate you taking the time to uh, to teach us so much tonight.
3: I've definitely learned way more from this interview than I have any of the other interviews we've done.
0: Yeah, I agree with that for sure. So thank you both so much for for teaching us tonight.
1: Uh, Thank you for having us. I'm so happy and proud. I have so much respect for you all and what you do. I think I've told you all I'm a subscriber to Mass. I love love your all's work. I love what you do. I appreciate um, you all giving us the opportunity to share this stuff with your community. And yeah, I'm just proud to be um, in the industry with people like you all.
2: And I just want to say, yeah, I'll I'll just back that up. Really, really so excited to have been able to do this talk with you guys and um, share the things that we get really excited talking about um, and to have this platform because I'm sure it'll be really useful for many people. Um, And also just to say thanks to both of you. I actually um, am on the mailing list too for math, and I have the art and science of lifting books. And I just think the amount of I, I can appreciate the amount of time and energy that you put into all your research and your articles. And there's so much that goes on behind the scenes that takes a lot of time and energy. And, um, I just want to say on behalf of all of us, thank you for all the hard work that you do. Cause I think it, it, it's fantastic.
3: It is our pleasure. Uh, would you have <laughs> any interest in plugging any of your own products and not just ours?
1: <laughs> well uh yeah our um pre and postnatal coaching certification it is the literally I am being a hundred percent like this is not hyperbolic literally the world's first and only um certification pre and postnatal certification that is comprehensive in terms of covering coaching psychology female anatomy and physiology. Um, nutrition, exercise, rest, recovery, programming, the birth process, all specific to pre and postnatal women. It's evidence-based. So there's over 300 references in there. It's interdisciplinary, 16 experts, six pelvic health physios, four PhDs in um, exercise science, molecular biology, psychology, and behavior change uh, for pre and postnatal experts, <laughs> OBGYN, doula, midwife, nurse practitioner, all of those people worked on the certification. Um, so it's comprehensive, evidence based, interdisciplinary. It comes with a 500 page textbook. So if this type of stuff interests you and you want to have, I mean, there's great information about working with pre and postnatal women that exists all over the internet, if you don't want to have to vet it all yourself, if you don't want to have to um, pull bits and pieces together and try to make sense of the context, if you want, you know, transformative information that actually tells you how to work with pre and postnatal women, that certification would be, um, would be your best bet. And if you go to girlsgunstrong.com forward slash cppc, that stands for certified pre and postnatal coach. Um, you can learn more about it, or you can just Google pre and postnatal coaching certification girls gun strong. Um, yeah, so that would
2: be that would be awesome. Marika, oh, I was just going to say, in terms of our Facebook group too, the coaching and training women women group, it's um a really lovely space for people to ask questions and um, share experiences. So if any of the coaches want to join that, that's that's a free Facebook group. That oh, how many people are in it? Thirty thousand, thirty
1: two thousand, yeah. Health and fitness professionals, or it's called GGS Coaching and Training Women. It's totally free. Um, folks, awesome folks like Marika and other experts who work on our um, certifications are in that group answering questions. And it's just a really supportive group. It's it, guys are like, I don't know if I'm supposed to be in here. It's like, yes, please, we, <laughs> want, we want you in there. Yes, um, absolutely. We want, yeah, we want you asking questions. I'd say it's probably 25% men in there about 75% women, but it's a great space where you can get access to Um, our experts and um, our community members and moderators it's just a really really cool uplifting group where we talk about a lot of this type of information
2: and if I can plug a podcast on another podcast um, (laughs) I don't know if that's poor etiquette Mm -hmm. I'll do it (laughs) Um, go for it was was that a grumble Uh, my colleague Anthony Lowe and I we have a podcast called the women's health podcast Um, it's obviously very different from um, the stronger than science but it's it's really about issues related to women's health. So if people have an interest in women's health, we interview people um, around the globe just about things like pelvic health, but yeah, anything to do with women's health really. So if that's a special interest, feel free to come and listen to us. Um, We're we're nowhere near as professional and I don't have the radio (laughs) voice, the radio voice that um, Eric has, but uh, we have a lot of fun. So it's kind of of interesting.
0: (laughs) All right. So if you're listening and you're like me and found out, throughout the course of this podcast that you have about 200 more blind spots than you knew about there are plenty of resources out there uh to uh to get to work and start uh, start learning more about some of these topics so once more we'd like to thank molly and marika for joining us we'd like to thank everyone for listening and we will see you on another episode of the stronger by science podcast thanks for listening to the stronger by science podcast now, Greg and I are not experts in medicine or health or really anything else for that matter. So before you make any changes to your diet and exercise habits, make sure you check with a doctor or another healthcare professional. If you enjoyed this podcast and you'd like to support it, visit StrongerByScience.com to check out the products and services that we offer. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.